Hello, and welcome to Sundry Reverie, the podcast, where we explore the union of God and science and many other topics, all from the perspective of an aspiring doctor. This week, we're going to talk about creation and the highest virtue. So, this past summer, a few months back, I read a book titled Origins, Christian Perspectives on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design. And while I read this book, I had a really, really big question that kind of beamed out at me. And it's a question I've wondered about prior to reading this book, but I really started thinking about it and meditating on it more and more after I read this book. So, first of all, God created light first, and then after creating a lot of extremely marvelous things. He created stars on the fourth day, as Genesis 1 says. Traditionally, the near consensus view of creation is the young earth interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, namely that the earth is only about 6,000 years old and each creation day mentioned in Genesis is a 24-hour day. Well, the huge question that comes to my mind that I was talking about just a few seconds ago is in regard to the light of the stars. On average, we can see around 19 quadrillion miles into the night sky. That's 19 followed by 15 zeros. If you write this number out on a piece of paper, you will see how ridiculously huge it is. That's also 3,200 light years away. Now that means that it takes more than 3,000 years for the light of those stars to reach us here on earth. So, when we look at those stars, we are seeing 3,000 years into the past, the light they emitted 3,000 years ago. We can often see faint stars that are one quintillion miles away. Those take around 300,000 years to get to us. Now, with telescopes and other modern technology, we can observe stars millions and billions of light years away. If a star is one million light years away from us here on Earth, and we observe light coming from it, then that light took one million years to reach our eyes. A reasonable deduction seems to be that the cosmos must be at least one million years old then. Otherwise, how could light have traveled to us from such a far distance if the universe didn't exist when it was initially emitted from the star? Does the universe have to be this old to explain these phenomena? Well. I don't really have a satisfying answer to that question. However, a lot of theologians and a lot of scientists have helped me out. Tim Challies, the insanely popular blogger, pastor, and author, wrote recently in one of his posts on his website that, quote, all Christians, no matter their interpretation of the opening chapters of Scripture, have difficult questions to face as they attempt to strike harmony between Scripture and science, or better, between God's book of special revelation and God's book of natural revelation, end quote. Yeah, Tim Challies is absolutely right. So perhaps the universe looks old because God made it old, or perhaps the universe looks old because it really is old. Now, there are some other derivative corollaries to possibilities in regard to these two theses I just said, but I'm not really going to worry about those here today. Doctors Lauren and Deborah Harsma, in their book, Origins, that I've been kind of talking about during this episode, they discuss the four main concordus interpretations of the opening chapters of Genesis. And the concordus view of creation 
God created the universe in the sequence, that's the key, the sequence of events described in the creation account. The first one, as I've briefly mentioned, is the young earth interpretation. Adherents to this view believe that creation occurred in six 24-hour days and that the earth is about 6,000 years old, and science should support this assertion. The next is the gap interpretation. People who interpret the first two chapters of Genesis in this way believe earth was created long ago. Often they believe millions or even billions of years ago. And the earth became formless and void or empty, as Genesis 1 verse 2 says. And then the earth was restored around 6,000 years ago. The third concordance view is the day-age interpretation, wherein its adherents believe creation occurred in events that transpired across billions of years. Dr. Harzma says in explaining this interpretation that, quote, each day of Genesis 1 corresponds to a long epoch of events that occurred in the order given in the text, but stretched out over a very long period of time, end quote. Lastly is the appearance of age interpretation. Individuals who interpret Genesis 1 and 2 in this manner believe creation occurred about 6,000 years ago during six 24-hour days, but the universe was created to look as if it were created billions of years ago. Proponents of the gap interpretation basically see Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, saying that God created the cosmos millions or billions of years ago. They also believe that following the universe's creation, the whole earth became formless and empty, perhaps from a catastrophe related to the fall of Satan and angels. And they see the rest of the creation account as a recreation or restitution, not creation, of the planet and life and everything else being created a few thousand years ago. This view was really purported initially at the beginning of this past century by the Schofield Study Bible, wherein it gives the commentary on Genesis chapter 1, and it changes a little bit of the wording traditionally from the Hebrew for verse 1 of chapter 1 of Genesis. The Schofield Bible, if you're just wondering, is also the Bible that really pushed dispensationalism into the populace. That's what started dispensationalism, is the Schofield Study Bible. It also started the gap interpretation, too. I thought that was a really interesting thing. I knew about the dispensationalism aspect of the Schofield Bible. I didn't realize that it actually proposed the gap interpretation until I started doing a little research into it. Anyways, I digress. So, the day-age interpretation is predicated on one huge thing, and that's the Hebrew word yom. Now, this is another concordance interpretation. This word, yom, can be translated as a 24-hour day or as an indefinite period of time, often a very long time. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 7, yom is used to refer to a very long period of time. The same thing is the case with Isaiah chapter 34, verse 8. However, it most often means a 24-hour day. The creation account says that there was evening and there was morning at the end of each day. So this leads logically and traditionally, to a 24-hour day interpretation of Yom in Genesis 1. However, my purpose in this episode today is not to try to support or negate either of those positions held 
for the day-age interpretation. However, the position I want to talk about is the appearance of age interpretation. As Dr. Harsma says, quote, because the gap interpretation and the day-age interpretation have difficulty matching all of the scientific data, appearance of age has been proposed, end quote. This is what Dr. Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Boyce College, advocates. However, some have suggested that the appearance of age assaults God's integrity. They ask, why would God create our planet with evidence of such rich, complex history, but all of that evidence testifies to something that's false, the Earth's age? That's the big question a lot of people ask. And God made an Earth that appears to be millions of years old, but it's not. That's their assertion. They think this is an assault to God's character, his integrity, his honesty, and it makes him a liar. When I first heard this assertion, I thought there was a lot of weight to it, actually. However, subsequent to being exposed to that argument, I knew that there was something a little off about that assertion, something that I couldn't really put my finger on. It just didn't settle well with me. Then I listened to a sermon by Dr. Al Mohler, and he strongly negated that argument. He said, quote, When God made Adam, Adam was not a fetus. Adam was a man. He had the appearance of a man. By our understanding, that would have required time for Adam to get old, but not by the sovereign creative power of God. End quote. This is a huge point that many people seem to have overlooked. Perhaps, in fact, the universe looks old because God created it whole. Dr. Moeller says, along with Romans 8, that the universe looks old rather than young to display the evidence and consequences of sin. For once we see this, we are but a short distance from considering the joy, necessity, and beauty of redemption. The suffering world is crying out for the deliverance that will come. We need to let not our views and interpretation of these highly controversial passages divide us, and especially, especially not define us. For we're defined not by our views on creation, but as being an adopted child of the mighty sovereign, if you're a Christian. And this calls for rejoicing. As 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Dr. R.C. Sproul, who is one of my favorite authors and theologians, and I kind of qualify him as my hero, actually. He wrote something in a book I'm currently reading, actually, that is just so true. He said, when he answers the question, how old is the universe? He says, I don't know, because the Bible doesn't tell us how old the universe is. And he goes on to explain how we should not define all of our theological views on just this one thing that the Bible doesn't expound on explicitly or even implicitly for the most part. And I think that's a really vital thing for Christians to remember. Anyways, so there are two ways God reveals himself to us, nature and his special revelation in Scripture. Now, both of these revelations of God are infallible. Now, I'm going to elaborate on that a little. So, what science studies is God's work, and Scripture is God's revealing the economy of redemption in his salvific work of Christ offered to us. 
However, obviously, there appears to be a huge disparity between science and interpreting the Bible. God did not err in his creation or the Bible. What errs is man's interpretation of Scripture and reconciling it with God's natural revelation, which is infallible in the studied scientific world. After all, God himself is infallible and perfect, yet man is errant and fallible. So, of course, there should be problems with our interpretations of an infinite being. This is my main point here. We are errant as humans. Sin blurs our vision, our interpretation of Scripture, and of God's Word. We're selfish. We're divisive. It's not God who is lying to us or deceiving us. It's our depravity, our sinfulness, that's messing everything up. God has only revealed so much to us. As Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to our Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. It is good to explore God's creation, to study His Word, and to rejoice in His revelations. However, this should not consume our world view. This knowledge should not be divisive. This knowledge should not be our ultimate virtue, our knowledge or our view, namely, on creation. Let's not forget what the Apostle Paul wrote in one of the most famous and well-recognized chapters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith but have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. And the greatest of the virtues set forth by Paul in this chapter in 1 Corinthians, along with faith and hope, is love. It's not our view on creation that so often divides us. For Jesus himself tells us that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor, not to argue about who's right and who's wrong on our view of the creation of this universe. He didn't tell us that we should seek to disprove each other malignantly. We ought to say with David, as he writes in Psalm 8, verses 3-4, through 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Let's not lose sight of what God's marvelous works and miracles are for. Yes, they serve to create and effect things, but they point to his absolute transcendent majesty and power. In Matthew chapter 28, the apostles meet Jesus resurrected. Some of them worshiped him, but some doubted, as verse 17 says. And Tim Keller wrote in his very popular book, The Reason for God, quote, this passage, Matthew 28, is a warning not to think that only we modern scientific people have to struggle with the idea of the miraculous, while ancient, more primitive people did not. Some believed and some didn't. The most instructive thing about this text is what it says about biblical miracles and God's power. They lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sundry Reverie. If you're interested in learning more or reading more, you can visit my website, sundryreverie.com, where I explore more topics and in greater depth, the union of God and science, along with marriage and becoming a doctor. And also, I frequently write book reviews, and 
I have guest writers on the website, write book reviews also. You can feel free to visit the website and check those out. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I also hope that you'll join me again in the next episode of Sundry Reverie.